From Glendale, California, this is Benstown VoiceOver Stories. Conversations with people from in front of and behind the mic in the worlds of voiceover, radio imaging, and podcasting. Hosted by Lauren Kling. On this episode of Benstown Stories, I chat with DJ, radio imaging, promo, and commercial voice actor Howard Kogan. Howard spent over 20 years spinning the hits on radio stations around Vancouver and Toronto, but it was his dry, sardonic reads on beer and fast food commercials that would land him his first imaging gig at Vancouver's Jack FM. His voice has been heard by millions of radio listeners and in thousands of doctors' offices across the U.S. and Canada. Let's take a listen to some of his work. Just Jack FM, no middle initial. When Jack FM is done playing what we want, the real punishment can begin. This is CBS Sports Radio. 100.7 CLX. CLX. The television series event of the fall. You're afraid. Yeah, you should be too. The Exorcist on Fox. Modern Family followed by the Blackish season finale ABC Wednesday. Shop and compare credit cards and find one worth gossiping about. Lending Tree. When banks compete, you win. On this episode, I chat with Howard about being a lifelong tech geek and building his first radio station at 10 years old in his parents' basement, how he's still pissed off about missing the hole in a golf pitch and putt game at six years old, and how that incident led to his work ethic today, his thoughts on why so many people hate the Jack FM format. But first, Howard and I wax poetically about being pioneers in the early days of radio station websites, when they were just a logo, a phone number, and a dream. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Alan Inc. This is Benstown Stories with Howard Kogan. Welcome, Howard. So, uh, yeah, what I love about your first website is you had a picture of you, and was that your actual Ontario, Canada driver's license? Uh, I, I don't even remember. You could refer. I thought I had like a stick man back then. I thought I just said, you know. Oh, I'm that not was an later on. That was actually oh, later okay. on. But I, I found some even older thing. I dredged up some older, an older website. I was probably the first guy to have a website because I know when I had a web. And let me, I'll just tell you a quick story. Yeah. Uh, years, you know, when I was on, I was a DJ. I was on the air, but you know, as 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 many people know, when you're a DJ, you're getting fired a lot. And I think it was in the late '90s. Um, I became in charge of the internet and and for a radio station in Vancouver. <laughs> and at the time, the website was the logo and the phone number and maybe the address. That was it. It was a logo with a phone number. So they said, hey, can you take over? And I built this whole thing. And I remember talking to the program director saying, uh, look, we need a domain name because these guys were on the air plugging their new website. And they were like, go to www colon slash slash uniserve colon dot and it was like a 15 minute soliloquy trying to tell them the website i said hey we could just go like you know whatever the name of the station.com and and the guy was like really i go yeah i think it's like 35 bucks and they're like oh my god okay go do that and it was like from there on so i when you say a website it goes way way back and uh right. i think back then nobody even looked at that website and i barely remember it so <laughs> it was probably on geocities or something like that CompuServe, yeah. i had that that was yeah. exciting you know i actually that's how i met uh dave chachi dennis uh from star fm in san diego i actually came in i was the first group to start up their website and again it was basically a logo and a phone number and maybe some 
text that wasn't changed that often. But we really, and I give props to Tracy Johnson, the program director, who was gung-ho about bringing the internet into radio and making giving people another way to feel a part of that process. It was it was a big deal. I remember doing that, and, and I was young, and I was I remember I was sort of like the mini general manager of the station because I had to go to every department. I, you know, I got the music guys to put their charts on. I said, "Why are you faxing these to the record companies? You know, they could just dial in and get your charts every week." Oh, they could. So you know, even the music guys, the sales guys could use it as a sales tool for presentations. The programming guys, of course, the profiles and the DJs and the music and the charts and. All of that stuff. So you had to build through each department. You had to build right. this online presence. So why were um, why were you the guy to do web stuff? Was that because somebody tasked you with it, or was it because you were like, "Hey, I love this stuff. I want to make I loved, it." Happen. I was a geek. I was a total geek. Were you? I, you know, we built our computers and did all that crap. <laughs> so I knew all about that crap. I'm a, a total gearhead geek. And, uh, and, and, and I guess, you know, I had friends in the station and they saw that and knew that. And, and uh, yeah, I, I thought, you know, I kept saying to my friends, I go, dude, this internet thing is going to be big. It's going to like change the world. And they're like, you're an idiot. Geek. <laughs> did, did the radio stations and the management, TV. did the radio stations and management, were they open to this new thing called the internet or was it a waste of time? And did they pay you the big bucks for it? They paid me nothing, and and actually after that gig, I went and I took a big on-air job in Toronto after that, but um, they didn't pay well, but it was an interesting gig, and yes, they were open-minded, but um, I think what happened, I think the whole industry fell into this trap for a while where they got really excited about having these websites and this online presence, because really, when you think about it, the only visual presence a radio station had for all those years was either they put up billboards and did marketing or the dial on the radio, which was some numbers. And now they had this whole presence and like this massive brochure that they could use. And then everybody fell into that trap where they got so excited that the whole radio station's purpose was just to promote the website. Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. We know you're listening to our station now, but go to our website. It's, it's awesome. And they were like driving everybody almost away from one device to another device. So I think that was a massive trap that people fell in. So they were open minded and they almost got too excited about it. And uh, I think, you know, as the world converges with smartphones, what the master plan was, was to have it all as one experience. While you're listening to the radio, you could punch on a contest or do all these cool things visually as you're listening to the product. But I don't know. I think now I've seen like a swing where they certainly want to make revenue from the uh, Internet. It's a whole it's, it's still kind of a mess the way I see it. <laughs> Nobody's really sure what to do with it. You know, are we ever really you know? sure of anything, though, when when you're building things, you've got new stuff to play with new toys. It's the geeks that are figuring it out. Yeah. And that and that's, you know, sure. And sometimes that's good. And sometimes it's not. I mean, I have friends at work, you know, and like companies like Facebook and they're getting into television and the cultures are trying to clash now because they're not trying to clash. They are clashing. But you know, the, the the geek guys that have been running the computer stuff for years are like, yeah, 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 go put that on TV. And then the TV people are like, whoa, 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 we need like waivers and stuff. You can't just put everybody on TV and, you know, there's a process here. Right. So the two cultures are very different. And I think that's sometimes that's no different in radio. I think that, you know, that the, the engineer shouldn't necessarily program the radio station. I mean, he may be very good and have great taste in music, but that's usually rare. Well, that's, yeah, that's one thing that, that I wanted to talk about was the idea of 
the DJ? What happened to the old days when the DJ was able to create their own playlists and play their music? And and certainly we'll touch on the Jack format, but that kind of, to me, seemed like the idea of we're going to replace our DJs with this voice that kind of carries that feeling throughout the day. I think most of the DJs got replaced uh, because of drugs. I think that uh, they, they were like a time in the 60s, they were like, really high and they're picking music and then the manager come in in a suit and go what the fuck is that guy doing (laughs) what is he playing they were trying to homogenize everything they had a business model and they needed everybody to conform to a certain thing and and quite honestly i mean as a dj you're like whoa i'd rather pick my own music what are they talking about but as the as it became more scientific and sophisticated it was very difficult for one guy to be better at it than the entire machine was, you know, with the research and the multiple markets and the expertise and all of that stuff. It became very different. And, and it became a mass-produced machine because you had the record companies on board and they were working a single and da-da-da-da. So you didn't need the DJ in New York deciding he didn't like the guy and screwing up the whole business plan. So it became... You know, a management-driven medium, I think, and from a talent-driven to more of a management-driven medium all these years. And then as far as Jack goes, you know, I get that a lot, uh, you know, is Jack, Jack's, you know. And look, Jack is, you know, even to this day has been hated by many in the industry. When we initially researched everything with Jack and we launched it, the audience got it and they really liked it. And, and, and the markets where they um, did it well and more or less correctly, it, it had success. But it's really hated in the industry because I think there's this fear that if this succeeds, we're all fucked. Like, you know, there, there, there's going to be no DJs and it, what is this going to be? And da, 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 one guy is going to be in all the stations. So I don't think for a minute that the Jack approach is right on all the stations and all the formats. I think, you know, I think Jack was unique because it came along with an older style of music. So, there, you know, it was in top 40 and it was exciting and new and da, 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 da. So you're playing an older style of music. You came on with a whole, it was a whole package and approach. It was a recipe to it. You were playing a massive playlist. You were going, you know, a mile wide and an inch deep. Right. On, on different genres of music and da-da-da-da, which, you know, broke all the molds. And then to have a guy on, I mean, when we launched it in Vancouver, the very first one, um, they put no DJs on and, and, and that's, and they only did it because most stations when they launch, regardless of the format, will go commercial free and not have DJs on. It's just a common thing. When we did it in Vancouver, it just kind of kept going and going, they're going, that sounds pretty good like this. And because we made the image and we put as much or more work into the imaging than people did for their morning shows. So, you know, we had writers and we made it, try to make it, the last thing we wanted to sound like was an automated robot. And if it was an automated robot, we'd make them funny and topical. So we did all of that work. And uh, I, I think, you know, as we progressed in Vancouver, it was like, well, okay, we got to like a month and we're like, okay. So they put a guy on in the morning and it was sort of reminding me of the days of Scott Shannon doing the morning show on pirate radio. He was sort of just the guy and it worked kind of well. But then they went, yeah, but we don't need, you know, we like it the way it is the rest of the day. And it was sort of, I don't think it was a grand plan. I think it just sort of launched like that at work. The ratings within three weeks, they went from, I don't remember what, but they seemed like a 15 share in three weeks or a month. So they saw something happening quickly. So I think because it took off so quickly, 
they were hesitant to jump in and make it a typical radio station. Everything was different. The marketing, how we approached it, we didn't take ourselves seriously, positioned ourselves as the underdog, you know, whereas all stations have always been boasting, right? The biggest hits, the most this, we're the greatest that. And we were doing the opposite, like, wow, you're still actually listening to us? We can't believe it. <laughs> and, it it um, was a feeling, wasn't it? It was, a, it was a, an emotional connection to you know between the listener and this music that they grew up in because wasn't a lot of that the music of you know the the seven late 70s the 80s and the 90s yeah it, it well, yeah i think the genres were or the decades or the time frame was uh you know we dabble in a you know play a couple of Jimi hendrix songs from the 60s we'd go into the 70s heavy heavy on the 80s touched into the 90s and the 2000s and i think over the years you know, we've moved it up a little more 90s and, and you know, a little and probably less 60s and less 70s. And, you know, as time moves on, we, we move with time. But um, it's certainly a very wide gamut and uh, it certainly breaks a lot of the rules. And uh, and it's been a battle. I mean, you know, Jack has been a very difficult thing to manage over the years. It's been it hasn't been centrally, you know, where you talk about the DJ having the power. Well, now it's sort of on a management level local program directors have the power. So sometimes you get a guy who came from a hot AC station, he goes, yeah, I worked at uh, whatever, uh, My 92 in whatever market, and it worked really well. I'm going to do it like this. And you're like, wait a minute, but we have this brand, and we're do and he goes, ah, I don't care. This is what worked. And he, and he makes it work because that's what he knows. So that's the problem. It, it was very difficult to control a brand nationally in radio run by, owned by a third-party licensee with a whole bunch of broadcast companies that own their own sticks. Very difficult business model. Over the course of his, uh, the radio's history, it's always been trying new things. And then, of course, you know, when there's time to look back at things, you can look at them and say, that was ridiculous or that really worked for those times. But it seemed like it was less about the format or creating a formula, but, but it was more managing the people behind the scenes and, and getting along with them and figuring figuring them out and figuring out how you're going to survive in that environment. Well, there wasn't a lot of people behind the scenes. In Los Angeles, we have a lot of people behind the scenes. But most markets, they, they, you know, they didn't do it well. They fired everybody, got rid of the DJs. I mean, I think they just saw it as a cost-saving measure as opposed to, hey, a different approach. Because you still need people on the air, whether, you know, if they're not a DJ introducing records, maybe they're like the ambassador for the station. They're a character. And, you know, we have Jacktivities as a feature and sometimes those people and they can go out and in public and they can become just like a DJ, but they have a more focused purpose on the radio station. So I think eliminating all the people wasn't the right move. I think uh, a lot of people got caught in that trap at the point of Jack wasn't to be a cost-saving measure. It was just a different approach to do it. So you needed to repurpose your resources. Kevin Weatherly did that in Los Angeles. They blew up Arrow, became Jack, and he kept most of the people. I mean, he kept them all on, the disc jockeys. And, you know, a lot of them stick, stuck around, and they became writers and had other jobs in the station. And, and it's still a team, and it was still, you know, because as a smart businessman, you get rid of those people. You never get those people back in the budgets. So... He was smart to hang on to the people, and, and a few other markets were, but many weren't. They just cleaned house, and they could never get the bodies back. All right, so I got to ask you about when you were six years old, I want to hear this story about a golf pitch and putt. Oh, we had this golf. I don't know why. I'm still mad 50 or whatever, not 50, but 40-something <laughs> years later. I'm still angry. And, and it was 
I don't know what it was. It was this thing. And, you know, I'm a kid. I barely remember. But I just remember it was just like it wasn't a golf tournament because I was six years old. You know, you didn't know how to play golf other than get the ball in the hole. So I was, you know, it was a little thing. You putt like whoever could putt it in and whatever from the line won a prize. And they had these giant toys and boxes of toys everywhere. And I missed the goddamn hole by like an inch. And I didn't get the toy. Like They were harsh back. It wasn't like today where the kid, you lose every soccer game and you still get a trophy. Right. It was like, kid, you lost. And and it's like, see that little three-year-old girl over there? She's getting the big doll in the box. And that guy over there is getting the big red fire truck. I was like, God damn it. I just remember sitting in the car crying on the way home going, fucking hate losing. I hate losing. And I think it motivated me the rest of my life to try not to lose. It gave me that fire that I needed, so... So how do you give prizes to kids when they lose? How well? How do you with your kids now? Do you give them prizes when they lose? No, I make fun of them if they get a prize when they lose. I go, "How did you get that? Well, what did you do?" And they go, "I know it's silly, right? (laughs) Win and they still gave us a prize." So they're aware. They're aware of the irony of that. I think so. I think the kids are a lot smarter than we give them credit for. So how do you approach when something doesn't go right for you today? Do you get angry like you did as a six-year-old, or do you approach it with a different demeanor? Oh, I get angry like a six-year-old. I throw <laughs> shit, and no, I'm just... <laughs> I, I, I hope I've learned a little along the way. Um, yeah, I mean, look, you take it more analytically. You're like, hey, what, uh, what, you know, how could I have done that better? You know, where did I screw up? What could I have done better? And, and what do I do next time? I think the older you get, you realize you do get other chances and, you know, it, it is part of the game and, and nobody bats a thousand in life all the time. And, and you, you do get to realize that with experience at six years old, you don't, you think it's over and that's it. And that's the way your whole life's going to be. Cause you don't know any better, but as you get older, I think you, uh, you temper it a little bit and it still, it still motivates you. It sucks. Right. Nobody likes, you know, nobody likes the needle in the eye. That sucks. It hurts. Right. So getting fired from stations when you were a DJ, was that a learning experience at the time or was it just bullshit? It was a learning experience. I mean, I go, that guy, that guy's a big fucking dickhead. He'll never succeed. Fuck him. <laughs> and I'm going to show him. You know, he's an idiot. And a lot of times they were, I got to be honest with you. I mean, you know, the greatest program directors I've worked with very rarely fire people. They make, they labor over the hiring process and it takes them forever to hire somebody and they rarely fire other guys. If people are firing people all the time, they need to look at themselves and say, what the hell? They can't select people. Then they don't have an eye or the ear or whatever it is. They're, they're missing something. So I think it does look bad on people that fire a lot. And then, you know, and then there's other reasons like budgets and that's a harsh reality of the business. So you can't blame a guy if they're, you know, saying, look, we got to hack our labor costs. And, you know, then that's that's a little different. But if a guy's just firing you because he goes, man, got to move in a different direction, that kind of crap. And then you see what they do. A lot of times uh, it's it's not usually the right move and those people end up getting fired themselves i find the guys that fire a lot get fired now when you were a little kid or when you were i think 10 years old you were building a radio station out of your dad's stereo components in the basement so was this i was obsessed i was obsessed it was two things i was obsessed with when i was a little kid television cameras and radio and I don't know what it was. I and, and you know, I, we could touch on the other thing about you know. I, I used to go to Canadian football games, and I loved football, and I played football. But 
I just wanted to see where they set all the cameras up. It was just, wow, they got a guy in a cherry picker in the end zone, and they got like two guys on these carts going up and down the sidelines, and they're shooting it from that angle. I don't know. I was obsessed with that by like six years old. And radio is the other thing. You know, I like music like every kid, and, and, and that probably attracted me to the radio. But then I became interested, wow, the DJs, and listen to that guy, and da-da-da-da. And, and, and I'd be I want to try that. And I'm like, how can, you know, you're, you're, by then I'm 12 maybe, and I'm, you know, uh, I'm like, you know, you have that conniving mind. You're like, hey, how could, I, how could I have a radio station like right now? What could I do? <laughs> and, and, you know, I went to Radio Shack, and I bought one of those little mixers, and, and I bought a turntable, but I'm like, how do they mix the records with one turntable? That doesn't work. Ah, and my father had this really expensive turntable. I'd get up at night and I'd take this turntable, bring it downstairs. I'd rig it all up and then have like two things. And I'd listen to another, one of the radio stations and I'd copy their breaks. I go, okay, you know, I'd do say what he said. I didn't know what to say. So I would say what they said. And then the other thing was one of the stations I listened to came out of Montreal and it was this weird it's come for those that are radio geeks, Shom FM, which C-H-O-M-F-M, which was a rock station and a huge rock station in Montreal at the time was bilingual. So the DJs would go back and forth, English to French. And, and you know, it would be like, what's that guy? I forget his name, Claude Rajat or somebody. And he'd go, all right, uh, that's uh, the music of the Kinks, Kisara, uh, La Forum de Montreal, La Douzième de May. And then you'd go back and a really good show and you should go see. And it was just like, wow. And it was like these guys were going back and forth in two languages on the radio. And it drove the government nuts because they didn't have a, a place for that. You were an English language station or you were a French language station. And these guys were doing both and they were getting all the ratings. And I think they made them shut that down eventually. Which is stupid because they were reaching the audience of that city. Right. Were you a radio geek? Were you, would you go to radio station events, concerts? Uh, yes, I would. <laughs> I would do Emceeing the concerts in my day was awful. They would go. I'd go. I brought on some of the biggest bands in the world. You know, Kiss. I'd introduce Kiss in Toronto at their big dome stadium. And then I remember they go, okay, dude, yeah, you know, got to hit the road. I go, what do you mean? I can't, I can't watch the show. Uh, well, you know, you don't have a ticket. We just, you know, you just got to bring on the band. I go, what, what, what do you mean? Like, can I, just, can I just stand here? I won't, I won't be in the way. I'll look at the back of Paul Stanley's hat. I, I'm fine. And then, no, 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 buddy. You know, so, you, know you got to have a ticket in the backstage. I go, but but I got here. Anyway, that kind of crap. It was like, what? Like, we never got to stick around at half these shows. Or if we, you know, the sales guys and their neighbors always got the tickets before. And I go, well, I'm the guy on the air. Can I not say, hey, I was at the show. It was a good show and hype it up. Nah, nah. It was weird. It was back then. They had no value on the air staff, and and so yes, we went to some events, but a lot of events they just uh, you know MC the sh- and and not only that, then they got to the point where the bands hated the disc jockeys, and they wanted you nowhere near their performance. So next thing you know, you're coming on when the house lights are on, the roadies are still plugging in the cables, and there's nine guys that came really early, and that's who you're talking to to open up the show. It was, um, it's certainly come full circle. And I think if you go to a show now, especially in LA, it's big and it's part of the show and the DJs matter and they're on video screens and, you know, but back then they were like, you're a DJ, you might as well be like a leper or something. Like they were like, they wanted nothing to do with you. Has social media, num- the social media followers, has that invaded the business where a DJ's not going to get a job because their numbers aren't big as somebody else's? 
I, 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 you know, I'm not on that side of it where I'm in a room where they're hiring a DJ, but I think that social media presence is massive. I know that the, the, the stations are very focused on it now. They hire social media people. I, I think it's a, it is a big deal. And I think so much so that, you know, that's where we're starting to catch them all cheating. You know, they're buying, you know, half the, the, the followers are, you know, a unmanned computer in a, a jungle somewhere on the other side of the world. And uh, I, I think, you know, I think that's the problem. People want it so bad. They just look at the numbers, but they don't really look at the engagement and what it means. Do you really have a platform? And, uh, yeah, I think... Um, you know, it's like an actor, right? I mean, if you have a million followers on Instagram and, and, and they give you a little role, even if it's a minor role, and you tweet or, you know, send out an Instagram post or something to the your, your followers, hey, I'm going to be on this show tomorrow night on this network, you know, that's a million more people. That's an instant promo. So your value of what they're paying you to A, do the job and B, promote it is gone up exponentially. So if there's two guys in the room... One guy's got a million, the other guy's got a thousand. They're probably hiring the guy with the million. Yeah. Even if he's not as good. You mentioned that you are a geek. It sounds like an equipment geek from building radios. Today, you like making YouTube videos. You have a, a show. What's the name of it on YouTube? Oh, yeah. I'm just, uh, that's an experiment right now. I'm right. doing Hoko News where I will I will tell everybody the news. Well, my, not the news, but my news, of the, you know, things I'm interested in and and my spin on it. And uh, it's an experiment. I mean, right now I'm up to uh, f- maybe 20 viewers. And, uh, you know, I, I think if I can, I, I haven't, look, I haven't done it on a regular enough basis. Now I'm more committed to it, but I would do one and then three months later do another one. And I think that anybody that's successful on YouTube will tell you never to do that, right? You have to have some level of consistency. So I, I, I do plan on doing that a bit more. I love that. I love editing. Editing to me is relaxing. Um, it's fun. And, uh, you know, and as far as the podcast goes, that too is, um, that's a different animal. That's just, um, you know, my producer, Mike Crank in, um, at Jack FM in Los Angeles, him and I work together. We do the voiceovers together. He records me and he puts all the stuff together like a magician. And, um, you know, when we do the sessions, we, you know, spend 40 minutes complaining and 10 minutes working. And I was like, dude, this should be the podcast. Like we're just complaining about stuff where, Nobody should complain about it, and it's like an art form. So we started this podcast with his buddy, Joey, who's a criminal attorney, has nothing to do with the business. <laughs> I guess he's more better call Saul than he is, you know, uh, anybody in the business. But he, too, also likes to complain and has turned it into an art form. And the three of us sit or it's like just listening to three guys in a bar bitching about stuff. When you say it's an experiment, is there a philosophy behind it, or is there something something you want to accomplish or is it just creative output? I, I think it's just a, for now it's a creative outlet. It's what I like to do. Look, being on Jack, you know, you're given the words by everybody else. Sometimes I get to write some of the lines, but most of them are written by other people. I used to be a DJ and I just, I'm still trying to keep up to date. I've, to me personally, I feel the vloggers are more DJs today than the DJs are. And, and I, and I watch, I have young daughters, you know, it's funny. I got into a conversation with my daughter and I I can't remember what it was, but it was something about, does she listen to the radio? Oh, I have, um, we go up to Apple beats one all the time. They're here in Culver city and, and, and I have a friend who works there and, and, um, and I was asking, you know, beats one, they got this big radio station and da, 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 da. Do you ever, it's built into your phone. Do you ever listen to it? And, uh, and then she was like, 
rolls her eyes and goes, radio? What am I going to do that for? I have, like, Apple Music. I can just play what I want on the, on the playlist. And I'm like, well, okay, so how do you know what to play then? It's my friend Ava. She tells me. I go, really? So how does Ava know what to listen to? Oh, her brother. <laughs> it just keeps going down the <laughs> chain, right? Like It's like, okay, so Ava has a radio station, plays all the stuff she tells you to listen to. Would you listen to that? Yeah, maybe. It's like, well, that's why there's radio stations. and But I had to explain to her why the, a radio station would even exist. And it's annoying and stupid that somebody else would pick the music for her. Like, she doesn't understand that. So I think, you know, but they all sit there glued to YouTube and they watch, you know. So for music, they just pick whatever they want. They go on these playlists. They're spoiled. There it is. You know, millions of songs in the universe. Then for their personality fix... They're on YouTube and they're watching all these idiots like Jake, whatever his name is, with the film and the dead bodies and, and, and uh, you know, the different YouTubers. And there's some girl, you know, sitting on her bed giving makeup tips to other 12 year olds or something. And she's got 20 million viewers and is, you know, driving a Rolls Royce. And and it's just it's insane to me what's what's happening. So I think the outlet today for me anyway is is better on youtube than radio radio is fun and you can talk and have a conversation and i think audio will be here for many years and i think podcasting will get bigger and bigger as time goes on but to be able to do all those bits and talk about all those things we did on the radio but now have a visual component to it where i can edit and use clips and do all these other things to me that's like you know the ultimate the ultimate mean for you, but do you see that as a possible next step in radio? Uh, well, not radio anymore, is it? I mean, it's, how is it radio? Radio is, I mean, that's the thing we need to figure out in this industry. What is radio? Does it just mean audio? Does it mean oh, just the sound? I mean, look at Sirius XM. I mean, half the channels, if you get into news talk, aren't they just rebroadcasting the cable news channels? I mean, the audio from that? So. Yeah. And to a lot of people, that's good enough. I hear, I hear what they're saying, and I'm getting the news. So, um, you know, what what is, <laughs> what's radio mean? Does it just mean audio? Uh, if so, that's not what I'm doing. If it means immediate live, bro, I don't know. I don't understand. Like, I think the, the mediums have converged to the point where how do you even define them anymore? It's an interesting thought that, you know, at some point someone's going to step back and kind of take a broad view of uh media television radio and figure you know what did, how does this work and you know how can people really well think about it? a radio station today that's playing music talk i can understand a little bit right you're doing the news okay that's providing a service da, 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 da. but you know what what are people pay you know what are these guys making millions and millions of dollars from they're playing other people's records in a different order and, and, you know, so what, what, what is that? Like, what's the value in a world where, you know, the reason it, it's surviving now is a couple of things bandwidth. I mean, I have T-Mobile, so we can listen to all the music we want on T-Mobile without being charged for the bandwidth. But many of these providers charge for bandwidth. So people are afraid to do too much Spotify or Apple music or whatever in the car. Cause they're like, Oh, so they feel the meters running and it's a hassle and you got to be a little bit technical, have a little technological knowledge to, Bluetooth it in and get it all working. So the radio is still there and it's convenient. You know, the auto industry has sort of kept it alive right now where you get in your car, you push a button and it works and it's free and it's easy. So it, until that goes away, there'll still be radio as we know it. But it slowly is going away. I mean, the cars are getting more sophisticated. Technology is getting better. People like the choice, play what they want, when they want. 
Um, so, you know, what's the value proposition of playing a bunch of records other mm. than that right now? Right. So it's to me, it's a short term window. If somebody said, you know, hey, congratulations, you want a billion dollars. What do you want to do with it? I'm not sure I'm buying a radio station. Plus, you have an Would audience. You? Probably not. I mean, like you have an audience now that that did listen to radio all their life and now they're slowly dying out. You know, they're not uh, they're not switching over to the Internet while you have a whole generation behind it coming around. Yeah, I, I, look, I don't think radio is going to disappear like next Tuesday. I think, you know, I think there's enough of a timeline. I still think there's money to be made. And I think, look, the radio industry historically has always evolved. It's always figured out a way. You know, when TV came along, it was like, oh, that's the end of radio. But, you know, it figured out a way. So, you know, I, I think when you watch podcasting and, and see where that's going. I think you're going to see the players in the radio industry start to move into that sort of content. And and radio stations still have a platform today, and they still have massive audiences in many markets. So they should take advantage of that. And I think a lot of them are. They're spending the money on that's, you know, the social media and all this stuff as to who they're going to become. You know, maybe it's like, are, why... Why are curators of music uh, some guy in his basement in New Jersey? Why wouldn't it be somebody who's run a successful radio station for 30 years who maybe has a deeper knowledge of music? Why aren't they the ones that are on social media dictating what people like or being tastemakers or influencers? So I think the world may catch up where the expertise will dominate in the end, right? I mean, anybody can do it now, but in the end, somebody better be good at it to really succeed at it. It, it does it's seem like I say, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, it's like, it's like somebody told me once, you know, now with all this social media and YouTube and everything, the end, the, the barrier of entry has been removed, right? If you wanted to do anything on YouTube or get a TV show or do anything like that, you had to have somebody give you permission and, you know, cut through a whole bunch of red tape and be the guy chosen to do that one thing. So the barrier of entry is removed because you can pick up a camera tomorrow and you can go do it. The barrier of success is still elusive. You know, we can go do it. And like I tell you, you know, I do stuff on YouTube and I got, you know, 20 views. But I mean, you know, how do you get to 20 million? Right. I mean, that's elusive. That's difficult. So that's that's what hasn't changed is uh, or that's what's flipped. Right. I mean, if you and I got The Tonight Show in 1967, there's three channels in America. If we're half competent, we show up. Somebody writes us some funny jokes. We're going to be successful. Right. It's pretty hard to screw that up. But today, you know, so you couldn't get in. It would be very hard to get the guy at NBC or CBS or whatever to give you that show. It was almost impossible for him to pick you. But if he did, you were going to be successful. But right. today it's flipped. Right. You can go do a show and you can do your own tonight show and da 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 da. But how are you going to be successful? That's hard. So the model has completely flipped upside down. Could Could you even say that your specific keys to success are even applicable today? Uh, good question. Good question. Uh, you know, what are the keys to success? Well, you know, the keys have been people that have, you know, allowed me an opportunity. Right. If I had to go start my own Jack FM on a website or, you know, on the Internet, well, some guy did, you know, and, and we, don't, we don't, you know, Bob Perry. We, we, we don't know much about Bob Perry. He's in Long Island and he works in the radio business. And he started the concept of, of the Jack FM thing online. But until it got into the right hands and the right gatekeepers were behind it, it didn't do anything. So, um, 
you know, I, I think it depends how you define success. If it's your character and it's like working hard and being open-minded and trying different things and always learning, then yeah, you know, that still applies. If it's a certain guy giving you permission to do a certain thing at a certain place, then that maybe no longer applies. It sounds like relationships are still and should always be important. I think so. I think so. I think, you know, sometimes key people can change your life, right? I mean, right. I mean every story is like that. How are some of the, or who are some of the mentors that you grew up with and what kind of advice did they give you that just hit you right in the gut? It's funny, you know, I, you know, I mean, I talk about my parents and my father, you know, everybody's parents, I guess, are, are their, I hope, you know, are their mentors to some degree by teaching you things and, and all of those lessons. But I, you know, I kind of thought about it. I thought, man, I could be, maybe I would have been way more successful if I had a mentor in the way that like Ryan Seacrest did with Dick Clark. You know, I never really had that. I worked for some program directors that were really good and some that weren't. And, and, uh, but I never, never really had that mentor at a level that, you know, and, and I think, and I regret that. I, I don't know if I could have done something differently or I probably wasn't as um, aware that that was beneficial back then. I was just kind of plodding along, doing my thing and, and, you know, meeting people along the way. But had I sat down at a young age and went, wow, you know, I mean, if you get a mentor, they could really teach you a lot and you can model after, you know, so, you know, how they do things and how did that guy become so successful and make so much money and did it, you know, and that's maybe your mailroom job at the William Morris agency for many people where they got to be around that and meet those people. But I didn't. I was working at local radio stations. Many of those guys today probably don't even work in the business. So, I, you know, I, I wasn't fortunate in that sense where I really had a mentor um, to show me how the ropes worked in my business. Have you been a mentor to anybody? Has anyone approached you? Um, I get a lot of people that will ask me advice and I give them advice, you know, what, what I can for what it's worth based on my own personal experience. But uh, it's just random people sort of people that a lot of them are in voiceover and doing that kind of stuff. But, um, I don't have a mentor program. I don't you know, necessarily <laughs> keep in touch with them and have a whole plan and charge the money. You know, I don't do any of that stuff. Um, but if somebody wants to ask me a question, I'll, I'll give them the best answer I can. Right. It, it's, it does seem elusive cause I'm kind of in the same boat with mentors. I have always dreamt of that I guess you would call it that magical person that you think is going to grab you by the hand and show you the ropes and introduce you to the people. And you do feel like, why can't I have that like other people? But, you know, our lives continue and we find other ways to have success. So that's why I was wondering if if you've felt that mentorship kind of thing to anyone else, and maybe it hasn't, maybe someone may come along at some point where you're like, you know what? I really feel drawn to helping this person because I believe in what they have or what they offer. You know, I've had, and don't get me wrong. I've worked with some fantastic people and they've given me some great advice along the way. And, and, and I've been, you know, but, and key people have hired me and, and all of that stuff that has made a difference in my life, but, but not in the, and in the way, and I keep using that example of Ryan Seacrest with Dick Clark, right? Ryan Seacrest was a DJ in LA making an okay living and, you know, I know American Idol changed his life, but okay, he could have just hosted American Idol, made a few million bucks from doing that. But how did he get to the next level where he's owning the Kardashian shows and he's doing like so much more than just being a guy on the radio? 
and that was Dick Clark and and the other guy. Uh, what was his name? Um, uh, he wrote all the theme songs. Uh, Merv Griffin, oh, I right. think, wasn't Merv involved with that too? I think there was all of those old time Hollywood guys really knew the business and really understood how to you know how to move things and shake them because uh, that's not. I don't think you're going to see that from the outside. You can kind of watch people and be a dist. You know, they could be your distant mentor. You could read biographies on them and study them. But it's not the same as sitting in their office when a guy's on a call and how they deal with it at that moment. Right. Well, with changing technology and the, the changing landscape of, of uh, radio and media in general, is are there certain pieces of advice you give that are still relevant and still important? Well, I think always... Always watch where the you know the the ship is going. You know where we're we're you know watch, keep an eye on the course. Don't and, get complacent. See. Yeah, don't get you ought to be a moving target. I don't care who you are and how successful you are. You have to be a moving target. Um, you know you can build up equity where you are, but you still have to leverage it to something else. That's been difficult for me personally, but it's it's it is something I know uh, academically. You have to do. Um, you know, you have to always look for an, another opportunity, another outlet, another way to do things. And it's different than you think. You know, if you are Ryan Seacrest and you are building these TV shows and you are building a small fortune, you know, you need to also look at maybe real estate investment and other. Where do you put your money? How do you, you know, what do you do? No different than an athlete. Right. I mean, you got a guy like Michael Jordan, who's what a billionaire. And you got other guys who have made millions and are bankrupt. So. You know, that is important to uh, always, you know, be a student of what you're doing and always look, you know, at different stages when you're unsuccessful and when you're successful. What you do next have to be a moving target. You just can't be the guy just sitting down complaining about how things have changed. I mean, I'll do that on my podcast, but no, not in, not in the rest of your life. How do you want to support a family? Yeah. yeah. Now, do you have you seen some people in your industry, those who haven't wanted to change? who have refused, who have just kind of fallen by the way, wayside? I mean, for sure. I mean, we've, you know, we've worked at radio stations with like a 63-year-old overnight guy or something, you know, and you go, oh, my God, what happened to that guy? Or, you know, or that guy used to be the program director and the general manager. Now he's like the overnight DJ. How did that happen? And it's this horrible sort of lesson. You're like, oh, I don't want that to happen to me. That would be horrible. Um you know, and maybe he's happy and maybe he's going, screw it. I couldn't take the pressure and I got a bunch of money in the bank and this is fun. I don't know. But, um, you know, you always look at those certain people and you go, oh, you know, as much as you want a mentor, sometimes you want, I don't know what you'd call it, a reverse mentor and go, <laughs> don't do what that guy did. Assisting the elderly. Yes. <laughs> you had uh, mentioned the Tommy Lee interview and I'm curious what it was about this Tommy Lee interview. Well, you asked me sort of things that changed my life. That was me. I was plodding along as a disc jockey at the time, uh, you know, after I did all the internet stuff in Vancouver, I got, I got a job in Toronto and I was the evening DJ at a rock station. Then I moved up to the afternoon DJ. It was a big rock station and it was a tumultuous time on that rock station. Our morning guy was Howard Stern and he was coming into Canada and the government was on his back and the ratings were huge and the audience was hostile and, um, Tommy Lee comes in for an interview in person in the studio and he was, you know, my recollection is, you know, he came in with another guy who's a rapper and we're on a hard rock station that played, you know, the worships Motley Crue and ACDC and Metallica and all these bands. 
and he brought a rapper in and you know I asked him about being in, in jail because he you know he had domestic violence charges and I you know was he a hero or were they frowning upon you know, I wanted to know a bunch of stuff I too am curious and then uh, you know he had a rapper sitting there and I go well what's with the you know with the rapper what are you what are you doing with that and then he just lost his shit he goes fuck you and he throws his headphones down this is afternoon drive like 4 30 <laughs> in the afternoon the station has a million and a half listeners and he's going fuck it and it's canada so they you know they look gunpoint they'll remove you from the studio if you start swearing so uh you know he's like fah, fah, and, and i'm like oh, i can't find the bot i don't know what button to hit what am i supposed to do and he's fucking fuck and he throws the headphones at me and he's screaming down the hall i'm like dude come back you're like what what did i say and then he's like fuck you and you can you can hear him walking off into the distance and all the record guys are screaming at me and the whole thing just blows up and explodes into this interview from hell and uh and and i'd met tommy before like i don't think he remembered me but i was backstage and i who was his girlfriend then it wasn't pam it was um Ah, oh, the other, I think it was another Baywatch, somebody else. And I was just joking. I said, hey, I want to meet her, Tommy, no offense. But anyway, so we did have a backstage encounter years before. But then this interview just blew up on the radio. And I don't even think the program director, who was a friend of mine, I don't think he even listened to it. He was like, shut up. I was done. Like, I had about three more days left on the air, and I never went back. Never spoke another word on the air in Toronto again after that interview, which is too bad because... It's still kind of, in my books, kind of funny. I mean, it's just Tommy Lee who gives a shit if you got mad. Like, so what? Right. And, uh, and, and anyway, but that was the end of my career, which forced me to go on and do other things, which probably are better. I'm glad I had a chance to be the voice of Jack FM instead of being stuck in Toronto as a disc jockey making no money. We kind of already touched on, the, on where you thought the future of radio is going to go. Now, you had said, as the talent pool dilutes, so does the value of the individual as well as the available equity. Yes, that's true. And that's in voiceover, too. That's the same. Everybody can do it. Back in the old days, you know, if you wanted to do radio, there was a guy we used on our station when I was in Vancouver on CKLG years ago. Our guy was Mitch Craig, who everybody knows in radio imaging. Big voice. He did Z100 New York. Back when he started... You needed like hundreds of thousands of dollars to have the studio and the equipment. And, and that guy moved to Memphis, Tennessee, I think, just so he could be at the FedEx hub so he could get all the tapes out overnight. So it was a big deal. And there weren't a lot of guys like him at the time. And then as technology advanced and we could all just record crap and mix crap and produce it off our laptops, the available talent pool grew. And... Uh, it, you know, it dilutes itself. And then therefore, and then I think, you know, in the radio industry, as we see them all going bankrupt, um, you know, that nobody wants to spend money, the value and imaging gets diluted. And, you know, what's the case you're going to make as to why to spend the money on it? It's difficult. And so therefore, the equity dries up, the available equity is drying up, not just on an individual station basis, but just on an industry wide basis, the advertising. And I'll tell you, let me just leave you with this, though. The advertising, the whole media business is effed, and I don't understand this model right now. Facebook is taking all the advertising revenue off everybody else's content. So why aren't the media companies protecting their own content? Why is Facebook running the content and getting all the ad dollars? Something's broken in that business, and nobody's figuring out the proper business model. Maybe they're just chasing what where everyone else is going. 
let's let's do that because yeah, but it's like Napster, right? The music industry, you know, they kind of a bit of a hiccup there with Napster, and they lost a lot of revenue. The movie guys seem to have protected their product a lot better because it's more difficult to download movies, and we didn't have the bandwidth and stuff that helped them. But you know, if I don't know your Time magazine and you you like Time magazine on Facebook. And you just read a bunch of their articles in your feed for free. You're never going to subscribe to Time Magazine. Right. Why bother? Right. Right. But now you're using Facebook, and Facebook's going, "Oh, look at you! You're watching. Hey, Lawrence, looking at this Time Magazine article. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to sell you that. This little ad's going to pop up beside you. So now, Facebook's making a bunch of money off of you reading Time Magazine's article. So that's what's broken, I think. All right. On that note, Howard, thank you so much for being on Ben's Town Stories. Thank you for letting me get it all off my chest. <laughs> Thank you again to my co-host, Alan Ng, and to this week's guest, Howard Kogan. You can find him online at howardkogan.com. That's C-O-G-A-N. Watch his vlog at youtube.com slash howardkogan and follow him on Twitter and Instagram at slash hkogan. Alan can be found online at twitter.com slash mypalal. That's M-Y-P-A-L-A-L. You can find me, Lauren, on Twitter and Instagram at slash Lauren Kling. That's L-O-R-E-N-K-L-I-N-G. Benstown Stories is a production of Benstown, located in Los Angeles, California.